Well, good morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is May 19th, 2016, and this is our normally normal monthly edition of Faith and Practice, our 25th edition, actually. So it's, what, the silver anniversary of the, of the podcast, <laughs> of the Faith and Practice. But anyway... Um, as usual, we're uh, glad and privileged to have uh, Dr. Piper in studio today to take questions from the listeners uh, and the normal practice of how we do things, um, and we'll get to those questions in just a second. Uh, many of you know uh, now uh, Greenville Seminary is, is wrapping up their 2015-2016 uh, uh, school year, and so uh, tomorrow night at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church will be uh, the 2016 commencement, and I don't remember what number it is, it's it's 27, I think, or something like that. But anyway, um, if you do live in the area, um, in the area of Greenville, South Carolina, and, and want to attend commencement, then you are invited. It is open to the public. And um, so come and rejoice with uh, the students and the faculty and the staff uh, for another successful uh, year as God has been good uh, to the seminary. Now, if you wanted to find out more information about Greenville Seminary, it's very simple. You go to the website, gpts.edu, and you can uh, peruse the site, see our newest video that is up. We have uh, two different versions of it, so avail yourself of those resources. And of course, uh, the ConfessingOurHope.com website. It's continually being updated, so uh, take a look at that when you uh, get a moment. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to, again, talk with uh, Dr. Joseph Piper. He's the president of Greenville Seminary, and he uh, comes in once a month and takes questions from the listeners. So in a sense, the listeners are determining what we're going to talk about in a way. And so, uh, Dr. Pipe, it's good to have you back again, and um, I guess uh, we're going to pray, and then we're going to begin. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your many mercies. You have been so kind to your people. You have remembered your covenant. You've been faithful when we have not been. And so, Lord, we do uh, thank you for this technology and this opportunity that you've given us to advance uh, your kingdom through this medium. And so we pray that you would use it, bless it, and bless the answers uh, as they're given may they be that which is wise and and full of your spirit we pray in christ's name amen amen all right dr piper let's uh, jump right in we're gonna thank you bill we're gonna stop at the, start at the top of the list as usual and uh, our first question comes in from kevin he writes in from uh, the great state of north carolina and it's the subject is patriarchs and the law and he asks did the patriarchs understand the essence of the ten commandments before giving of the law at mount sinai did they observe the sabbath Good question. Good question, Kevin, and thank you, folks. It's good to be with you. The patriarchs would have understood the essence of the Ten Commandments. Two reasons for that. Ten Commandments were God's moral law, are God's moral law, and they were given to Adam in the garden. There's differences of opinion whether they were given verbally or uh, God simply wrote the law on Adam's heart and he knew it intuitively, but conscience is the basis of the law. Whatever Adam would have known of God's revelation, he would have uh, then passed on to subsequent generations, and Abraham is not that far removed from Noah. And so Adam would have known the law of God. Uh, Abraham then would have known the essence, surely, of the Ten Commandments. The gracious act of God at Mount Sinai was to give a a permanent record of the law, because at that point it was only on conscience, and the conscience was corrupted, is corrupted by the fall. And so this was a gracious act of God to give a permanent record. In the new covenant, God has actually instilled within the hearts of the regenerate a great delight in and hunger for his law, although we know from David's confessions in the Psalms that they had that as well. With respect to the Sabbath, they would have known the Sabbath because it was a creation ordinance given in Genesis 2, the first three verses. And we know that the fourth commandment, then when it's given to Mount Sinai, uh, premises it upon that creation ordinance. How faithful were they? The Bible gives us no record. Uh, there's a couple of things uh, early on. Uh, it, when it speaks of Cain and Abel, the Hebrew actually says, at the end of days. And I think it's quite valid to interpret that <coughs> uh, as uh, at the end of the week. I think the New American Standard says, in the course of time. Very bad translation. In the end of days would suggest the seventh day. 
The only other evidence we would have with respect to patriarchal observance of the Sabbath, we have no reason to believe they didn't, but the positive evidence is in Exodus chapter 16, where when the manna is given, and God then says in verse 22, now on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, that's what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And so the people would have known about the Sabbath ordinance. God built that into uh, the collection of the manna. You couldn't collect extra Sunday through uh, Thursday. But on Friday, you collected a double portion so you could keep the Sabbath on Saturday. So uh, it was surely in their memory bank. As slaves, we don't know exactly what would have happened to the observance of the Sabbath. But, yes, it is a continuing ordinance, as are all of the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, as given at Mount Sinai, would have had uh, civil, and judicial applica- uh, civil and ceremonial applications. And we understand that. But the essence of the moral laws and the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, and uh, they have been since creation and continue um, forever. Very good, Kevin. Thank you for writing in and for um, asking a very good question. Um, Chuck writes in from Georgia, and he asks, what are some ways to keep – this is – I was smiling when I read it earlier. What are some ways to keep books and study about God from becoming idols in and of themselves? Reminds <laughs> me of Calvin's comment that we're just idol factories, and, and I look around this room, and I see, I see all this. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It is a good question, and it is something I think that all of us uh, need to evaluate. It's not just books and study. Uh, it's anything. Good things – can be turned to idols. Mm-hmm. That's the underlying premise, as Bill referred to Calvin's uh, uh, comments in the Institutes. The best way is in our studies to be what we would call experimental. Never let reading of theology books or the collection of them be an end in itself, mm-hmm. but all of our study is a means to knowing God better, worshiping and serving Him. And so we make it a spiritual exercise. I would say even in reading, uh, I've been reading some of the 19th century British literature, uh, Elizabeth Gaskell and George Eliot. And, but even that kind of reading, we need to do that in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's for entertaining, entertainment, but we do it, we do it for God's glory. That would be the other principle. We seek God through our religious studies. We, all that we do, we do for God's glory. We keep reminding ourselves of that. And then periodically, I'll sometimes sit in uh, one of my favorite rooms in our home, and I will reflect, you know, if in fact persecution came and I had to uh, deny Christ or walk away from my uh, comfortable, beautiful home and my books, mm. you know, am I able to do so? And so I keep, try to keep short accounts that way. As well, so it's just with anything else, Chuck. We have to guard our hearts, and I, there's a there's a word for those that collect books merely for the sake of collecting books. I came across it a few weeks ago. It's uh, it's Rich. Bibli- biblio something. No, <laughs> uh, but uh, we, and that also is a temptation, you know, to just uh, you know buy the books and not read them. Right. Uh, I'm guilty of that. You've got a lot of a lot of reading, not a lot of time. So. We try to guard our hearts against all things. And, and Dr. Pipe, I mentioned the experimental aspect, and as many of you know, I'm, Lord willing, graduating from the seminary tomorrow. In four years, five for me, um, it is something that's strongly emphasized and in the classroom curriculum. You hear it often from Dr. McGraw, Dr. Pipe, and the other professors. As we're studying the finer points of doctrine and theology, reading good books, and we're constantly being reminded by these fathers in the faith to remember it's an act of worship before God. It ought to move us to worship, move us to experimental piety and all that we do. And we're reminded of that often here. Um, and so I'm very thankful as a student that's leaving um, of that training that, uh, that I've received and others also. So good question and one that we have to constantly keep reminding ourselves of. Um, Terry, I see I'm lost my place here. Okay, Terry, Terry writes in. Um, I don't know from where this came in through the website. 
But he asked, he was interested to hear your, which uh, Dr. Pipe was going to handle this, was interested to hear your preliminary comments on the Legionnaire statement on Christology. I have areas of concern. Now, we dealt with this question in part last faith and practice, so if you want to go back to number 24 and listen to it, you can do that. But uh, he asks, he, he says, Dr. R.C. Sproul has publicly stated that he has no problems with paintings of Jesus Christ. In fact, the vestibule of St. Andrew's Chapel has several. I fear this, this non-confessional stand is reflected in the statement's handling of the two natures of Christ. Do you want to stop there, or do you want me to keep going? Let's do that one first. Okay. Terry, um, I was in a meeting that looked at the first draft of the statement. We made some um, input, and then uh, so the Ligonier staff did some changes uh, in, in that, and the, kind of under the wire, from what I've been told, to get it published at a certain time. As I understand it, the purpose of this is not to make a confessional statement, but to guard Christology in the same way that the uh, uh, Chicago Conference on Inerrancy produced a statement on inerrancy, just to give uh, statements uh, on, uh, on the doctrine. I've gone back, I've not gone back, excuse me, and looked at the statement on the two natures. It's, I, read, I read the critique uh, that was offered on that. I thought there were valid things in the critique. I also thought it was a bit over the top uh, in, in places. I will do that, but um, I don't know that in any way this statement itself uh, would commit anyone to holding to Dr. Sproul's position. Now, saying that, I strongly disagree with Dr. Sproul. I believe that exegetically, uh, we should not have any visible images of Christ outside the Lord's Supper. Confessionally, we also are prohibited from having any images of Christ outside the Lord's Supper. Uh, Dr. Sproul and I agree on most things, and I praise God. I constantly meet people, and they've come to the Reformed faith through his either his broadcast or his CDs or books. But we have a couple of areas of disagreement, this would be one of them, and tied to that the whole regular principle of worship. They, they are connected. And so they would have a different approach to worship there as well. Um, and so uh, I don't think the statement locks anybody into his position. Perhaps, as it was suggested in the review article, the statement is not as strong on the two natures in um, their union as it could be because of that, but I don't know that there was any uh, overt presuppositions guiding that. As to it being a confessional statement, it's not a creed. It's a statement of clarification. If a church wants to use it, um, you know, I guess they're free to do so. I encourage my students only to use uh, in corporate worship statements that have been time-honored, proven, and accepted by the church. That's basically the ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasians' Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, or our adopted confession, uh, either chapters or catechism questions, or the newer Westminster Confession, which is a, um, a collation of uh, certain doctrines out of the creed are the, something out of the three forms of unity. So I'm not going to use things that are not approved by the church. Uh, so that's their, again, they would have a different approach to worship. Mm -hmm. they're, they're the authors of this thing, and, and they're very keen that it simply reflects scripture. I'm not here to judge them. Uh, so I actually moved into the second question as well. Yeah, the second question, um, Dr. Puppet did address it. It just simply makes reference to the fact that uh, apparently St. Andrews is using this statement in, that's not a creed in their worship service. I think Dr. Puppet adequately handled that portion of the question. So, uh, Terry, I do appreciate the question. I realize that this issue has created a little bit of controversy thanks to the Internet but, um, and other matters. But, um, but, but I do appreciate your writing in and listening to the program. Um, I thought I think I was just thinking about where to take a break, as it were, um, and maybe 
Tell the listeners. Tell the listeners. Yeah, a little bit. Um, tell the listeners about Dr. Wilborn's class this summer and the Summer Institute. Maybe um, those of you who do are on our mailing list um, and receive the brochure for the Summer Institute. Um, it's a small correction as to how it was set out. I think um, it, the, the brochure said Westminster Confession and pastoral care. I think it's supposed to be the men of the Westminster Assembly and right. pastoral care. It, it's a subtle difference, but. Anyway, because um, confession doesn't really speak to, to uh, pastoral care, right. and I'd asked them to run that by him before it went out, and I think the, probably the publicity department got ahead of the yep. syllabus. But. So I'll tell the listeners about that. It's it's um, I'm signing up for it. Um, I, I'm well, I am very very excited about it, and I, we hope to uh, have a, a very full house for you know the summer institute is something that uh, in God's providence I started when I came here in uh, 1998. I had been running a Doctor of Ministry program, and I was asked if I wanted to do one in preaching here. Mm. And there's a lot of value to such a program, but what I discovered, at least in my limited experience, was that I wasn't making that much of a difference in the preaching of the individuals. Uh, There's some very good material. There are a number of excellent books on preaching that came out of that program. But I would prefer to invest time in trying to make a difference uh, weekly in the life of the church. I'm not sure that we've had as much success with that as, as I wanted, but surely more, I think, than the other way we would have had. So we started this primarily for pastors, and then we, it broadened to leaders, male leaders in church, and actually there are women that also at times tend uh, the institute with their husbands. So we probably two-thirds of the time do focus on preaching and probably will go back to preaching next year. We did preaching last year, preaching from the Psalms, but we also try to bring in topics that will be of pastoral use. Now, Dr. Van Dixhorn has his doctorate from the University of Cambridge uh, in uh, the Puritan uh, in the Westminster Minutes. He is the leading expert then on the assembly, and he has done uh, the conf- the commentary on the Confession that Banner Truth published about a year and a half ago. He has been compiling um, the records of the Senate of the, of the Assembly. Uh, he's done stuff on preaching, but as we talked about it, he said the one area that I really want to work on and have not been able to and could use the course as a means of doing that would be uh, the, uh, the approach to pastoral care of the Westminster Divines. So that is the uh, the general topic, and it is of utmost importance because if there's any place in the church today next to preaching that is abysmal, it is pastoral care. So I think that we're both going to learn a great deal, but I think we'll also be challenged to change our own practice. And as normal, this uh, functions on a number of levels. We have men that take it for MDiv credit. They'll have different extra assignments. We have pastors that take it for continuing ed credit. You get three continuing ed credits for the course, and they'll have a practical project of how to apply what they're getting to their own pastoral situation. And others just pay the money and come sit and listen, not held accountable. And you may do that as well. So I'm excited about that. And it follows up to next week with a course that we offer about every two or three years. It was a course that Dr. Smith developed. Dr. Wilborn has been coveting it. And when Dr. Smith retired, Dr. Wilborn has picked it up, and this is the course on Southern Presbyterian theology. Southern Presbyterian theologians have fallen on hard times today, and that's because people fail to misunderstand the great contribution that they've made to the church. Uh, Yes, they, as men of their times, had errors, just as Calvin had errors and complicity in the putting to death of Servetus and, and like that, but does not detract from great contribution. This is kind of a vacation course. We don't do cruises here, at least we haven't, but we do these trips. And so Dr. Wilborn, half the course will be on the road to Columbia and to Charleston to some of the really wonderful sites of early Southern Presbyterian uh, theologians and schools and uh, churches. I've done the tour. It is well worthwhile. It's excellent. And so come for both come for one or the other but definitely come and i think you will profit from it and the, as dr piper mentioned these are back-to-back weeks uh the uh the the one with dr van dixorn is um august 1st to the 5th and then dr wilborn is august 8th 
through the 12th. Go to the website, gpts.edu, that uh, register, uh, registration information, uh, fees, credits, all the information you need for these is, ri- is right there on the website. So avail yourself of that. All right, well, let's jump back into the questions. Um, one that we've, we get from time to time, um, it seems, uh, on the program, but uh, it's rather lengthy, uh, so I will just read it as it is, and then, um, and then we'll deal with it. Let's don't, okay. because he's asked me for more than I agreed to do today. Outstanding. So uh, this came to me uh, as a follow-up of a question that we had, uh, Faith and Practice number 22, on the Confession of Faith and Exclusive Psalmody. And in answering that, I mentioned that I thought there was an ambiguity in the Confession of Faith and with respect to the use of psalms in public worship. And I've been challenged that that, in fact, not all of the members of the Westminster Assembly were committed to exclusive psalmody, and I'd actually have been asked to research that. Now, I've not started that research yet, so uh, Tom was asking me what I had sources I'd come to up to this point, and I am putting together a bibliography. Um, But I'll simply say uh, this, that uh, Thomas Manton, for example, in his uh, commentary on uh, James' sermons, in James chapter 5, when James says, is anyone among you cheerful, he's to sing praises, uh, Manton says the word that's used here uh, does not mean psalms exclusively. But he, will, he goes on to say, I prefer to use psalms exclusively in worship. So which shows that even in his day, and I think you're going to find a similar comment in Matthew Henry a little later, but still the same uh, period. Uh, even in his day, it was recognized. So at this point, I'm taking the confession to be saying that we must sing psalms in worship. And they're very important to the degree that there was also an approved psalter. But I don't take it that as a requirement only to sing psalms in worship. One of the mistakes uh, that people have is, is that the Reformed Church did not compose hymns. But they did, and he was often old in his uh, material on the things on the prayers of the church, uh, uh, references a number of the early Psalter hymnals and Reformation-based hymns. And so in the Reformation, I mean, well, Calvin was, Calvin sang mostly Psalms, not because he thought Scripture commanded it, because he thought, rightly so, that before people learned other things, they should learn the Psalter. And so he was in the process of having the Psalms put into metrical form and taught to the congregation. He actually used children from the school to kind of function as a complement to teach the congregation uh, the psalms. But there are hymns attributed to Calvin. They sang other, th- other things in the worship. They sang the doxology. They sang the Te Deum, the uh, Nunc Dimittis. Uh, and so that was pretty much the case of the early, uh, early reformers as well. Now, I teach what I call inclusive psalms, I like to, in a Lord's Day, morning and evening, sing at least 50%, if not more, uh, psalms. And that's what we encourage our students uh, to do. So, Tom, it's an ongoing discussion. If any of our readers have any resources, either way, I surely would appreciate your forwarding those to me. Well, thank you, Tom, for the question. And um, I'm I'm certain we'll continue to uh, field questions on this subject as we go forward and get to our now, before you golden leave, anniversary. Before you leave, Tom, uh, give another announcement here to his PS. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, very good. Thank you for that reminder. Um, as many as you, many of you know, we, we do a, an, annual, an annual Spring Theology Conference at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church in, in March, uh, second week in March usually. Um, after a number of weeks uh, have gone by, after the conference is over, we upload them to Sermon Audio. Um, so if you would like to hear the Spring Theology Conference from 2016, you can access it now on Sermon Audio on our GPTS and Mount Olive section of Sermon Audio. So avail yourself of that. Not only that, they are all on the GPTS mobile app, including all the video. 
So you can get them in either place. And uh, they can still buy it if they want to and, have their own permanent and, copies. And you can buy them as, as Dr. great Parker birthday and Christmas presents. Excellent. Outstanding. You can't give sermon audio to somebody with Christmas presents. This, this is you becoming an advertisement a- podcast. No, but seriously, it's a, it's, it was an excellent, excellent conference. And I'm not just saying that because st- I'm a student. I'm saying that because it tr- it's true. It was a fantastic conference, dealt with a lot of things related to the family. And so sit down with your family and listen to them. Some, some of them you might want to do after your children go to bed. Um, but sit down with your wife, husband, and listen to them. They were very, very good. On the Sermon Audio website, GPTS and Mount Olive, that's where you can locate them. Chris writes in on the subject of prayer. Um, he asks, what is the best way to explain texts like Mark eleven twenty four, which seem to teach a, quote, name it and claim it, unquote, kind of theology of prayer? And the story in Mark 9, where the man is basically told that the real obstacle standing in the way of his son's healing is not Jesus' power to heal, but his own lack of faith, Mark nine twenty three. Typically, we are taught that we need to submit to God's sovereignty in terms of answers to prayer. These verses seem to teach that we need to believe that we will receive it, I'm assuming, and it will be ours. I struggle to explain this to people in such a way that it doesn't sound like I'm trying to qualify the text to say what it doesn't say. It seems most people start out by saying, well, it can't mean this. So what does it mean? Good, Chris. Thank you. And by the way, Chris is kind of a counterpart to you. Oh, is he? At Puritan. He's their IT guy. Oh, that, I've met Chris. He's a good guy. I've met Chris. All right. Um, it's a very important question. Um, and I would never answer those questions starting with what it, uh, what it doesn't mean. I, I think I would start with James chapter 1, where Christ, uh, or the Holy Spirit, says uh, through James... If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. So the Bible tells us that we are to pray in faith. Now, praying in faith is the prayer of the leper who came to Jesus. Um, You are able, are you willing? If he's willing, we know he is able. Then we have two categories of things for which we pray. The things that God has promised in his word, well, these are things that we can pray for very, very confidently. And we should do so praying and and believing. So the Mark 11 text that is in your question, Chris, Therefore, I say to you, all things which you pray, ask, and believe you receive them, they will be granted to you. Keep that in mind with the promise that when we pray according to God's will. Every verse of Scripture doesn't say everything. The confession of faith rightly teaches that we compare Scripture with Scripture. Scripture is the interpreter of Scripture. So we know in Scripture there are those that pray for things they didn't receive. Paul, for example, the removal of the thorn in the flesh. We know that sometimes God answers prayer, but in a way very different from what we conceive, such as Paul being delivered from his enemies in Jerusalem. He was. As Romans prayed for him, he came to Rome, but he did so at taxpayers' expense. And that gave him access to a whole segment of Roman society that he would not have had if he'd gone there as a free man. And then the account in Mark 9, after the transfiguration, uh, the man whose son uh, was demon-possessed. Again, Jesus is, is making the, the principle there, and he's also got an eye on his disciples as he's saying this. Um, and that's when he says that uh, the man says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. So the all things are possible is true within God's providence. Mm -hmm. Now, in this case, deliverance from a demon is surely something that God's going to give. God would never say no to the one who comes and seeks him for salvation, our, our spiritual deliverance. And so we are to pray believing this is not praying that I'm going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, wise, yes, not healthy and wealthy. Um, 
I just read some remarkable quotations from Calvin and the Institutes. Chris, go back and look at Calvin on providence and that, as that relates to prayer. And Calvin actually says that we're to pray as if all things were fortuitous. Maybe you did that in your, in your research, Bill. Which is it's a remarkable thing. He says, uh, we don't pray knowing that God has uh, foreordained the answer. We pray as if he hadn't. Right. Uh, because we don't know God's decree. And thus, if it's a lawful thing to pray for, we are to pray boldly uh, for that thing, and we are to do so until God, in one way or other in his providence, answers that prayer or tells us it's time to move on. The only way he's going to do that is so you're praying for the conversion of somebody, they die, uh, then you know it's time to move on. But otherwise, as long as they live, uh, then you... uh, you keep praying uh, for them. You're praying for a, a spouse who's sick. Um, you, you pray for their healing. They are in terminal pain. You, you, you pray for them, that God will deliver them, uh, that God will give grace to honor him. But the Bible wants us to pray boldly and to pray with faith. I, I think that so often what we do in reform circles is when we add on, um, if it is your will, uh, we're really letting God off the hook. It's funny you say that, Dr. Pepe. I was just sharing some of these thoughts that you have communicated to us uh, through ch- uh, one of your chapel sermons that completely changed the way I prayed after I heard that sermon from James and sharing that with the congregation in Atlantis. And I said the exact same thing. I said, we need to, we need to pray boldly. We need to, sometimes we, we just want to let God off the hook. If it's your will, if you're, you're praying for someone's uh, salvation or you're praying for someone to be healed, you're praying for... Pray like a ju- pray like a lawyer arguing with a just judge. Use his word with him, and and I got the strange I got the strangest looks. I don't think they've ever heard that before. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's sequence the next question really well from Bill. So let's just keep going here, and we'll actually be answering more of Chris's question as well. All right. Well, uh, William writes in from Texas. We appreciate William. He's a regular listener and a regular regular writer. He retweets our. Yep. Our tweets he advertising sure the program, and we appreciate you a lot, Bill. And, and I, in fact, I think, yep, he's listening live, too. So um, hello from Greenville to Texas. And uh, the question, uh, it's on prayer again. Jesus taught us to pray by asking the Father in his name. And it has been my understanding that we should not approach our holy God without a mediator. These questions are inspired by my children. That <laughs> very encouraged when I read things like that. Um, so the first uh, part of the question is, why does it seem that the psalmist and others in the Bible, such as Hannah or Mary, can pray to God without pleading the mediator? We've also noticed that the prayers in the book, The Valley of Vision, seem to not close with the clause. I think we'll do, handle that one first. Yeah, and let me, uh, I did, memory failed me here. I thought Bill's question also included the thing about um, if, God, if it be God's will. That, that is an attitude that we're to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an attitude of submission. Uh, it's it's at times it's proper to express it, uh, but it's also should be an attitude whether it's expressed or not. We just want to be careful that we don't do it to. We, we're not really like the leper. We don't believe if you're willing, you're able. Yeah, you know, oftentimes people see that they they in Jesus' name, Amen. It's almost. No, like I'm not to that yet. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm talking about God's will. Yes. Okay. Uh, and so we pray boldly, not knowing God's will, and then. Uh, yes, we, we submit to God's will, but it doesn't always have to be said, and particularly when we guard ourselves about saying it in a way that really is just a sign of unbelief. Mm-hmm. You have not because you ask not, the Savior said. And we need to become much more bold in uh, prayer. Luke 11, persevering prayer with the great promise, ask, seek, knock. And particularly then for the things that we know are God's will, our sanctification, the daily quickening work of the Holy Spirit. He said that, uh, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit? Mm. So every day we boldly pray for sanctification and power in the Spirit. And we pray, so first it's the sense that God's will be done. Second, we pray with a conscious dependence that we can only come through God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. That clarifies a a doctrinal problem. A non-Trinitarian prayers are not heard. God might act in his providence, but he is not going to honor prayer of one who prays to a false god. And so if you don't, if a person 
I've heard people say, you know, that uh, the God of the Jews, the God of the Christians, the God of the Muslims, the same God. No. Uh, the God of the Jews, the God of the Muslims is not the Trinitarian God. He's not our God. And so we always come to our God aware of the fact that we cannot approach this holy God apart from the Mediator. But again, looking at Scripture, and you yourself give us some examples. Of course, now in the Old Covenant, they would not have framed their prayers in the name of Christ. They had not been instructed to do that. So that really, the Psalms and, and Hannah's prayer. But even, uh, I think, if we looked at prayers in the, um, in the New Covenant, we don't always have uh, that. I'm, I'm going to the top of my head now, but Paul's prayer in uh, Ephesians mm-hmm. talks about all knees uh, bowing to the Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> and um, he prays, but he doesn't pray in the name of Christ. He gives a doxology to Christ. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. <clears throat> so uh, it's an attitude, and that most often our prayers should be in the name of Christ. Now one of the errors I've heard lately, I've heard it here in a man I esteem, and I've heard it in churches, uh, and people are praying in the name of the triune God. That's a no-no. Mm. We do not pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a new one for Bill, so good. I'm glad I said that. Well, no, I just when you said that, it reminded me of the answer to the um, shorter catechism question that right. says, you know, we pray in Jesus' name right. and, and so forth, and just reminded me of that. Yeah, so we do that. We, we must avoid the other, but we don't have to conclude every prayer uh, in the name of Jesus as long as that is, again, our heart attitude. And the whole idea of putting doxologies at the end of prayer, uh, that's what the Lord models for us in the Lord's Prayer. Now, some people uh, think that particular doxology is not there. I take it as being there in the text. But we have other prayers as well in Scripture. Well, even if it's not that in the Matthew 6 text, it's in the other one, definitely. I think, if I have that right. No, it's not. It's not in Luke. The doxology is not. They're not in either one? Well, according to, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's in Luke. Thought it was okay. Well, that doesn't matter. I'm looking quickly. You might be right. So it's very important that we. um, Yeah, no, it's not in Luke. So, concluding our prayers of doxologies. Well, often I'll pray now in the name of Christ, to whom belongs power, honor, glory, and dominion. Or take Mm -hmm. one of the doxologies. Plummer, in his book on the Ten Commandments, I think it's on the Third Commandment, points out a real lack a sin by our failure to use doxologies in prayer and in the worship of God. So uh, we start there that uh, it's to be an attitude. We should never pray the name of the triune God, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the mediator. Uh, And we don't have to always say the words. So that takes care of the first part. I did want to just uh, make a comment here that uh, that I was going to make before. And, and, and I've noticed this even in my own prayer life where it just becomes like a big period at the end of the prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, because that's what we're so used to doing. And it's, it needs to be from the heart and sincere. And one of the things that I've, I've tried to do in my own prayer life, and I was encouraged to do this by um, Pastor Tom Ellis, who is, frequents the halls here at the seminary, and he's uh, been a min- was a minister for 40-some-odd years, retired, is to, pray in the, in, to bring that up front in, this, in the prayer. So we approach you, our Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't okay. come in our own works and efforts, but we come in his name. Um, bring that up front. So right, Let me remind hearers of Larger Catechism 180 and 181. 180, what is it to pray in the name of Christ? To pray in the name of Christ is in obedience to his command and in confidence on his promises. That's the important part. To ask mercy for his sake, not by bare mentioning of his name, but by drawing our encouragement to pray and our boldness, strength, and hope of acceptance in prayer from Christ and his mediations. That's what I mean when I say it's a heart attitude. And then why are we to pray in the name of Christ? The sinfulness of man and his distance from God by reason thereof being so great as that we can have no access into his presence without a mediator. And there being none in heaven or earth appointed 
too are fit for that glorious work, but Christ alone we're to pray in no other name but his only. And that gets at this name, pray in the name of the Father and the Son and, and the Spirit as, as well. So, yeah, approach with a, a sense of it. Mention it throughout our prayers. Use it at times. Uh, so I'll pick up 2C. It's really here, but we'll, we'll come back to it under 2 now. You want to do 2B? No, 2. Well, 2 you just answered. No, what are your thoughts on prayer? The, oh, no, you did. I'm sorry. You're right. I've answered one. What are uh, so the, the, that's okay. Bill's been living without sleep the last week, trying to finish school. So, um, it, William continues the question on prayer with, "What are your thoughts on praying directly to the Son or to the Spirit?" Very good. There are those that say that uh, you know we should not do that, uh, but again, Scripture must be uh, our our God. Normally, our prayers are addressed to the Father as the acting head of the Trinity. So we come to the Father, through the Son, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. But when the prayer has to do with the particular work of one of the other persons, then it is proper to address them. And I just preached a text. I might preach this text actually for Bill's ordination. Second Thessalonians. This is a prayer for uh, uh, the Christians, but uh, I call it prayer for the ordinan. Verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Mm. Not only is the petition addressed to Christ, but it's addressed to Christ first, very unique, before it's addressed to the Father. Or in Revelation, O come Holy Spirit. And so when it has, you know, you, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, you can ask the Son to fill you, but you can ask the Spirit to quicken you, to revive you, to lead you. So we normally address the Father, but we address the Son and the Spirit when it has to do particularly with their offices and work. When you address the Son, you don't need to try and pray in His name. That was then to uh, see how should we close such prayers? Well, a prayer to the Son of the Spirit, a prayer to the Spirit can be through Christ. But if you're praying to Christ, you don't pray in, in Christ's name. I hear people do that as well. And then 2B, is there a difference between praise and petition when it comes to this? Uh, probably to the degree that we would be, we praise, our prayers should be Trinitarian. Our, our prayers of praise should be Trinitarian. And again, often they're not. And so we should be in our worship. My good friend, Dr. Ian Hamilton, seeks always to have an opening psalm or hymn that's going to be Trinitarian in focus. Uh, and our opening praise should be Trinitarian. Uh, and so, yes, uh, praise should be even much more obviously Trinitarian. And our petition is normally to the Father, but to one or both or all three if it has to do with particular works. Well, very good, and thank you for the question, and I really enjoy the questions on prayer uh, from the listeners. It just encourages me personally to engage in more prayer, um, and listening to the answers is very edifying. Um, Go ahead and do the next one since we're, we've got 15 minutes yet. So. All right. Da, it's Davi. I think I got that. No, we're not doing that. Are we going to do that yeah, one? Yeah, we're going to do it. Go ahead okay. and do Davi from Rio de Janeiro. Rio de Janeiro. I think that's in South America. <laughs> anyway, he writes on women putting on veils during public service. Uh, these are There are faithful pastors which defend the use of the veil for women during the service based on the text of 1 Corinthians 11, 5 through 10. Paul is clearly ordaining women to put on veil put on a veil in the context of worship, but is this ordinance valid nowadays? Good to hear from you, Davi. Look forward to seeing you in July uh, when I'm down there. So we go to First Corinthians 11, uh, very lengthy section. First Corinthians 11. Uh, Paul says, I want you to, verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man has who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying 
disgraces her head. For she's one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he's the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. Therefore women ought to have a symbol of authority over on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, that's creation, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourself, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? If a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. This is probably one of the most debated passages of Scripture in the Reformed Church, uh, where we have uh, two uh, basic positions with a number of interpretive principles of getting uh, at particularly the second one. There are those, and it's a minority, that believes, at least today it's a minority, that a woman should have her head covered. Now, what they advocate as a covering doesn't meet the text, though. Paul says she's to have a veil. So little doilies or berets are not veils. So, yes, the head's covered, but it's not uh, a full obedience to this text. That's the first thing. But at least they're trying to keep the spirit of the text. The other position, which today is the majority position, and that is that this text is not valid. Now, there are a number of ways that people get there. I outright reject that this was simply a cultural matter uh, and uh, it's no longer appropriate today. That's a very dangerous um, hermeneutic, put that baldly. I do think that there could be a cultural aspect to it. And that gets into the fact that a woman's long hair is her glory. And in verse 15, it's given to her, and the Greek word there, given to her for a covering is anti, instead of a covering. Now, my position up to this point has been that if a woman's hair is worn in a style of the day that expresses uh, submission and authority, that she does not need to have her head covered. But the length of that hair will vary from culture to culture. So the remarks here about long hair, exactly what does that mean? I mean, the Nazarite, had, he couldn't shave his head, and he would weave his hair into, seven, I think, seven locks. Um, some of the great Puritans, uh, you look at them, uh, John Owen, uh, long hair. Uh, but in his culture, his hair was of a masculine nature. And so the, uh, today, if, if we see some women that you know have got buzzes, I think if a woman has a buzz uh, that she should have her head covered in worship. Now, the third approach uh, or exegetical interpretation that I'm looking into, and I was hoping to get to visit with Dr. Knight before we went on the air today. I was going to actually postpone this question. I'll come back to it if I get more clarification. This has to do with particular functions. Uh, a woman receiving a prophecy, First uh, Corinthians 14, where she's not speaking of herself, but she's the agent of the Holy Spirit. She was to have her head covered. If she does that in public prayer, and she has the prophecy. And since we no longer have uh, these revealed prayers and prophecies to us in corporate worship, and Paul in the pastoral tells her to be silent in corporate worship, it's no longer an issue. So that she does not need to have her head covered as she participates corporately uh, in worship. Now, regardless of how one gets there, I believe there's a text in 1 Timothy 2 that speaks as well 
uh, to the fact that head covering was not of a permanent nature in the church. Because Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 9, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, if she had a veil on, it wouldn't matter what her hair looked like, would it? Mm -hmm. Nobody would know if she had braided her hair with uh, gold or pearls because uh, these veils would have covered the entire head. And so it seems to me that uh, by comparing again Scripture with Scripture that we're seeing here there was a change taking place. Whatever the reason uh, that uh, by the time Paul wrote uh, uh, to Timothy, uh, the veil was no longer going to be a requirement in because the, in the, the pastoral epistles are written for the age in which we live now. Yeah, very very good question. Um, I think, um, if I don't remember the episode, uh, but we did deal with this also, I think, in an earlier... Yes, we did. Um, ...earlier uh, faith and practice. Uh, Hillary writes in from, I think, Germany. Yes. And um, she has two questions. You want to just take these in order? Yes, please. All right. The first question is uh, regarding the church uh, public prayer meeting. Should women pray aloud or remain silent and pray along with the men as they lead? Okay, Hillary, it's always, whether it's by distance or not, to get to communicate with you and Steve. Miss you all very much. Pray for you. Uh, they're doing a very interesting ministry. I think it's in Stuttgart. Uh, it's with uh, Ministry of Military International. Mm -hmm. And so the, the Waltons are pastoring a church located right outside a army installation in Germany. Uh, there's a number of these. There's one in Brazil. There's one in Okinawa. Uh, this one in Germany, and these are under the press chair of the southeast of the, of the PCA. Purpose is to have a permanent church to minister to uh, servicemen to do evangelism. Now, what they're seeing in Germany is they're attracting a lot of people from the community, which is why they've said ministry to military international. But uh, you all pray for that ministry, and um, it's a great work they're doing. Well, Again, within the Reformed Church, there are two approaches to this. There are those that say that she should remain silent and pray along with men as they lead, and there are those that say that she may pray aloud. I take the second position. Let's define our terms. We're not talking about corporate worship. In the corporate assembly where we come into the throne room of God, the Bible is very clear, outside of corporate participation in the recitation of a creed, are in the singing of a psalm or a hymn uh, or a corporate prayer of uh, uh, that we would pray together in unison, a woman is to be silent. When we come to the church's prayer meeting, which is how I'm taking uh, the question, for me the model of the church's prayer meeting is the church family and not the church at corporate worship. And so I'm I'm building from the home. So in my home, although I will probably, the majority of the time, uh, lead in prayer, I will have my wife lead in prayer, or sometimes we'll both pray. When we had children, we encouraged the children uh, to pray. Uh, because the family at prayer, I think we all are to participate, not just following along, but uh, this is where particularly children learn to pray and Mm -hmm. uh, and so I take that the church's prayer meeting is the church family at prayer. And so I encourage women and even children to participate in the prayer meeting. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to continue with that thought. Yeah, I mean, that's the actually, Dr. Pope, I was glad we did. We talked about this in another episode and probably in class and wherever else. And it's it's kind of the model that the session at Landis is trying to incorporate into our corporate prayer meetings. We only meet once a month right now for logistical reasons, but but that's kind of the, the way we're doing it. And, and, and everybody prays. It's really encouraging to it hear is. the church really pray is. like that. And um, so it's a very good question. And, um, and I realize people wrestle with this. Um, and I guess the other element that probably we should maybe mention is that if your conscience is restricting you, 
as as a woman in the church, you don't believe that you really have the freedom to do it, then you need to listen to your conscience and and work through that, but don't violate your conscience uh, because other women are doing it. Um, My wife wrestled with this a little bit. Yeah consulted with me numerous times and about this question and has come to the realization that she can and does pray in the, in the prayer meeting but um but again the conscience and sometimes bill women um just are not as comfortable praying in, they feel uh, intimidated it's not a matter of conscience uh, a number of churches here in the greenville area actually divide uh, so it's the women praying with women mm-hmm. and the men praying with men normally in smaller groups so where we go to church uh, we'll divide up into five or six, and she'll have a number of group of men together, women together. I think when we were at another PCA church in town for a number of years, they, they did the same thing. Yep. Other churches have the body together. Again, you work out what's best in your particular situation. I do like praying with the whole body, yep. uh, but this is probably a greater encouragement to, to the women. Absolutely. Very good. Point. The second question um, from Hillary is: The Bible seems clear about what things older women should teach younger women. And as I find myself in position to be the Bible study leader, I feel some conflict within about how to teach these things. We have studied books by men and books by women, and a book by a woman about how to study the Bible, and are now working through a Ligonier study on the attributes of God. But I want to study and teach what the Scriptures say a woman should teach. Are studies of books of the Bible appropriate, or should we gather as women and focus on the things mentioned in the Scriptures which pertain to women? Or do we glean these things, how to love our husbands and children, how to be keepers at home, from any book of Scripture that we study? I really feel a conflict when teaching women who have serious questions about the faith. Can I, without stepping out of bounds, attempt to answer these questions? I do try, but at the back of my mind is how am I helping them to love their husbands and children and so forth? What are the bounds of the women teaching other women? Well, again, as with the uh, previous two questions, we've got a pretty wide range of approaches here uh, on this, uh, all the way from some Reformed churches that will have let women teach um, even not just books by other people that approve, but their own material. I think I addressed that question actually maybe last last earlier this month or last month on faith and practice. Uh, to um, doing the very narrow uh, female discipleship that you uh, focus on. The, the passage to which Hillary alludes is in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that... They may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And then, this is where I got on the limb last time, but I'll stay on the limb until somebody shows me that uh, I'm wrong. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul tells the women to be silent in the church and not to exercise authority over a man, he gives the reason. It was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved or saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Positively, I think Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2 that the woman's role in the church is primarily domestic. Whether she's married or not married, she has a whole unique set of gifts, of feminine characteristics that the church needs, and uh, the focus of the woman in the church should be the focus as the woman who is married at home. It's domestic, uh, so you assist the deacons, you make the church beautiful, you do acts of mercy and kindness. Um, and that, I think, is the, the positive approach. We must not forget that as we are wired, that Paul seems to be saying here that women are more apt to be deceived theologically than men. Now, women have other gifts. Women are much more apt to see through subterfuge, guile, uh, deceit, flattery uh, than men are. 
and we need their input. But uh, regard, and that's when we, and when Paul puts out these general principles, you know, he's not saying that it's true of of every single Christian woman. Like he says, all Cretans are liars. He's not making a racist statement. He's saying this is a, this is a this is a pattern. So, on the basis of those two passages, my position has been that um, a woman should not, definitely not, be teaching uh, original material. If she's going to teach original material, it needs to be things that has been carefully vetted by a pastor in session. But then when I go to Titus, I think, as you have hinted at, Hillary, that her primary role in teaching is to equip women for their domestic role in the family and in the church. And so I prefer to see uh, women's studies focus on those things. Um, if they are broader studies, then the material should be approved, as we said last month, by the session mm -hmm. completely so that uh, uh, the woman's teaching. But in, in Houston, I taught the women's Bible study. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's very specious to think only a woman can teach women. Um, no, the, the minister is ordained teacher of the Word of God and should be able to teach women, children, men equally. Uh, and so I taught the women's study when it was a book study. The exception I make is in female discipleship where you get a new Christian or someone new to the Reformed faith and this person needs to be equipped. So for example, I've written a book on discipleship for the Westminster Standards and the Bible and I encourage if it's a single woman that either a couple or a woman work with that other woman through through the book and then couples work with couples men work with men uh, so I think that's and then the other thing that happens in some of these groups is because husbands cannot take time off during the day to go to a Bible study you suddenly get women doing all this extra work and they begin to get a feeling a sense of superior spiritual superiority to their husbands because they're much more into these organized studies than their husbands can be and the last thing I say is, and we said this in our church in California, uh, we'll give you a women's Bible study when all the women come to prayer meeting. <laughs> you know, we've got a stated meeting, and most churches are very poorly attended. And so I don't want to have a, a, another study competing until the most important yep. extra meeting in the church is being met, and we're yep. out of time. Yeah, very good comments, and thank you, Hillary, for the question. Well, Dr. Pepper, thank you again for coming in. It's a busy day, two days for you. Do um, you want to give them our summer schedule? Uh, I will um, in, when I do the wrap-up here. Um, but again, thanks for being in and um, for answering these questions faithfully every month. Uh, just want to remind everybody um, the process for sending questions into Faith and Practice for those listening to the recording. Um, never sent a question. Um, you're missing out, um, really. Uh, we give away, as it were, uh, a ten dollar coupon from uh, from to Banner of Truth, and uh, you, you can buy a book at the Banner of Truth store. You get ten dollars off and buy two books. Buy well, five, Banner of Truth gives the book away. Buy buy five books. But but anyway, write a question. Doctor Pepper deals with it. You get ten ten bucks. I mean, it's easy money. Um, so you can go to the website confessingourhope.com. It's the link is at the very top. Faith and Practice Questions. Click on that. There's a form. Fill it out. Send it. Boom. It's that simple. You can use Twitter. Uh, you can use the Facebook uh, the resource. The easiest way is the website. Um, so do that. It, it, along the same lines of the faith and practice, uh, I was thinking about this the other day, and I decided that to make it easy, um, that I was, I'd split the faith and practice up into volumes, uh, volumes of five episodes each, and they're archived on the website, so you can download the first five, then the second five, and so forth. And in that, eventually, uh, in that page is going to be a database of topics and resources and things that have been talked about so that you can quickly scan it and say, hey, I'm, I got questions about women teaching women. And, and, oh, Faith and Practice 22 dealt with that, or Faith and Practice 24 dealt with that. And you can get the information very, very uh, quickly. So that's on the website now, only in the archive format. The database has not been fully completed yet, so that'll be done in the next few months, Lord willing. 
Coming up on the program, uh, I say what I usually say every time at this point. The easiest way is to go to the website uh, and, and, and see what is coming up. But Jeff Gleason will be on June 3rd um, to talk about the evening of confessional concern and prayer that is held at the PCA General Assembly every year. Following uh, Jeff on June 3rd will be Dr. Ryan McGraw. He'll be on to talk about his little book, Is a Trinity Practical? Great discussion and looking forward to that. And then that week after that, Dr. Piper will be back on to talk about, as, it, as he always does, the faith and practice questions from the listeners. So that is a little bit of a highlight of, of what is coming up. And you told me to say something. Now I for completely forgot. Well, I said you give them the summer schedule. We're oh, that's gonna, right. We've got it set so the people who want to come live are able to do so. Yeah, we do have the summer schedule for faith and practice that is uh, set and ready to roll. And, um, and it is this. Uh, May 19th, that's today. We've done it. June 14th at 9.15, July 29th, same time, and August 16th. So look forward to those coming up on the program um, in the next few months. We do appreciate all of our listeners and writing in, and if you do have questions that you want to write, you can do that at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. So until our next edition, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.